Hi, I'm Steve Duke, and this is the Two Roads Podcast. Today on the show, we have Ash Reed, and Ash is what people now call a solopreneur. So what's this? This is someone who sets up and runs their own business, but basically does it on their own. They're a woman band, and he now runs a publication company called 937 Media, which in the last year or so has really taken off. But he's only been full-time on 937 Media since the end of last year. You see, he started it back in 2020 as a side hustle while he was still doing his full-time job, working in content at Buffer. And in November last year was when he was making more money from 937 than he was from his full-time job. And then he decided to leave and go full-time on what was previously his side hustle. On this episode, we talk about why he didn't go to uni, his 10 plus years working in content and what he loved about that, how to use cold DMs and emails to land a job that you love, his framework for making career decisions. That one's right at the end. How to start a side hustle while still working your main job. What an online publication company even is and how he's built it to be so successful. How he learned to start putting himself ahead of his work and the benefits that that has brought him. And finally, how to decide when to leave and go full time on building your own thing. Now, on this show, I try to chat with people who live a life that they really love. People who've been conscious about building this life for themselves, learning how they figured out what they wanted and also how they made that a reality. And Ash ticks all these boxes. This was a really fascinating conversation, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Let's get into it. Footprints, man. They're going to remember the name like I told you, man. Fuck it. Take it away. Your time now. Ash, when you were a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? So, yeah, I think like once I... Kind of, where it kind of dawned on me that I wasn't going to make it as a footballer. Um, I always wanted to work in animation. Um, and I think that kind of comes from like growing up, I would always watch like the old Disney films. Like I remember we used to have all of those on like VHS. Um, and, you know, then like Ardman, like a British company, they used to make like Wallace and Gromit. Like they were always out at like Christmas. Um, I used to love those. And then, you know, as I kind of got a little bit older, like Toy Story and all the Pixar films started coming out. And like, that was just something that always like fascinated me. Um, so yeah, always wanted to work in animation and kind of very nearly ended up going to like art school at university to like pursue that. And then kind of last minute decided against it. What happened that you didn't go to art uh, school? So... I basically wasn't good enough at drawing, <laughs> essentially. Like, I was really good at the computer side. So um, when I left school, um, I'd done a two-year, like, BTEC, which is kind of like the opposite to, like, A-levels or, or staying on at school till 18. Um, but I studied, like, media and moving image. And I really enjoyed and, like, got quite good at the, like, 3D animation side of it, like, the software, using the tools, like, building characters, that side of it but my um my drawing wasn't good enough for like the top art schools and I was like if I'm gonna do this like I'm gonna do it at one of the top schools that's gonna get me where I want to go rather than like kind of taking like a third or fourth choice option and you know not then having that path into the companies that I wanted to work for um so yeah it kind of was that was probably a big pivot at like 18 and 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 you you actually had to draw as part of like what's the application process for these places that you had to draw? 
so you had to take like a portfolio of work and like half of it was kind of like the computer side, the animation, that work. And then part of it was just like a sketch portfolio. Um, and yeah, like mine just wasn't up to scratch. Um, I think like there was certain courses, like I definitely would have got into and I could have got into like pretty much any computer animation, um, like class, I guess, or whatever, like course. Um, but yeah, I just kind of knew like if I, if I was going to do it, I wanted to do it properly. And, you know, it's kind of like, I'll take a year out and see like, if this is something that I'm going to improve or if I'm just going to like figure out another path and, and try something different. What did you do then once you knew that you weren't going to get into one of these top schools? So I basically like that was when I probably first started um, building stuff on the web. Um, so I would have been like 18, 19, um, probably a little bit lost, to be honest. Um, I yeah finished college. Um, I worked in a sports shop in town, like that closed um and i didn't really have a lot to do um so yeah like it was also in like 2008 so like the middle of the financial crisis where like no one was giving anyone jobs and even entry level jobs they wanted like experience which obviously no one at entry level jobs has um so yeah i was a little bit lost and then um a friend of mine was like working part-time for a web agency building websites. And we just started like kind of messing around with ideas and like try to build, um, yeah, build like internet businesses. Um, and I've probably been trying like to build an internet business every day since then, um, with a lot of fails. Um, but yeah, like the first thing we launched was just this idea of like, we'd both played sport, getting sponsors was hard. So we tried to build a marketplace, um, to, allow sports like local sports clubs to basically say like we need a new kit and for businesses to go on and sponsor them um i don't think it was like a dreadful idea but it was just like we built it really badly like we did manage to get like a few sponsorship deals from it but like yeah it was obviously like looking back on it you could see it was probably the work of like two 18 19 year olds that didn't really know what they were doing um but yeah i think like that's where I probably decided like, oh, actually, this is quite fun. And I think it also kind of made me realize like you can do things on your own. Like you don't have to kind of follow the like university, get a graduate job at a big company um, that, yeah, I could kind of try and do something of my own, um, even though, yeah, it wasn't like at all really successful. Because I want to connect the dots between that time when you were 18 and or 19 and starting your very first internet business and, and what you do now, like, I do want to hear that story, but if we skip forward to what you do now, how do you describe it? What do you say that you do now? I still kind of struggle. So like, I guess technically it's like I run a publishing company. Like I have, um, you know, like free, um, publications all in like the home space, um, focused on like, I have like livingcozy.com that helps people kind of discover, furniture brands and like the best kind of furniture to, to share the homes with interior insider, which is only a couple of months old, um, which is focused on like interior design advice. And then, um, indoorplants.com, which is just like all about house plants and, uh, helping people to keep those alive. Um, which I also need to learn cause I have a lot of dead ones floating around the house. Um, but yeah, so like, it's, um, 
yeah, technically, I guess, yeah, like a web publishing business. Um, but yeah, I think because it started as a side project, like I still struggle to think of it as like this actual business, not just something that I run in my spare yeah. time. Like, And when you say, like when you say publishing business, they're primarily websites, right? Or are there other elements yeah. of it that kind of lead you to calling calling them publishing businesses because there's other parts of it, like email newsletters or, or something else? Yeah, so like primarily websites and, and SEO-driven um, publications, but yeah, like also newsletters. Um, you know, we don't do too much on social just due to like time constraints, but that's an area we'll expand into. Um, also like, you know, we do some kind of creative services work for brands that we work with, like producing um, like Facebook and Instagram ads, um, running campaigns to help them like reach new audiences, um, things like that. But yeah, like the primary driver of the business is the websites and um, yeah, essentially building the traffic to those sites and generating revenue through um, affiliate sponsorships, display ads and brand partnerships. Gotcha. So if I might try to explain this for somebody who may not have ever heard of an affiliate or SEO or whatever else, um, Ash has three three websites that he just mentioned. And these are the types of websites that have lots of great content on products that you might be interested in. So I guess what would be some, a, a sample search, Ash, that somebody might search for that would end up on yeah, your site? So um, like most of our traffic a lot, or a lot of it comes through like sofa related searches. So like if someone's like, I want a new sectional sofa, um, they search like best sectional sofas. We're normally in like the top five results in Google, um, certainly in the US. So yeah, then when someone you know searches best sectional sofa, they might see us in the search results page, click on our link, visit the website. And then we will kind of list all of the products that we've reviewed, um, some brands that have good options if you're looking for that type of sofa. And then in like, we don't have a relationship with every brand, but if we have a partnership with that brand and you click on the link from our site and go on to buy that sofa, then like we'll get a commission, which is usually between like three to 12%, um, which is why I focused on sofas because like they're high average order value. Um, and yeah, as soon as I launched the site and like the first sofa sold, I was like, oh, this is where I need to focus because like it's going to drive a lot more revenue than like focusing on the kitchen and selling frying pans. Cause like 2% of a $50 frying pan isn't a lot, but like 5% of a $2,000 sofa is worth putting the time into like creating content for. Totally. Um, Wait, so then why indoor plants is your third one? Because that doesn't strike me as a particularly high average order value so product. that one, honestly, like I've done, so like there's a few direct consumer plants companies that have started doing really well in the last like probably five years, like Bloomscape and The Sill. Um, and it felt like a natural kind of progression from like the home. And yeah, like the average order value isn't high. Um, but there is a lot of traffic for that, um, niche. And I think also like, I wanted to build a site that I could maybe like experiment a little bit more with, like maybe try out different ways of publishing, like, um, you know, see what happens if we can like use some AI tools to like speed up the process. Um, because yeah, like a lot of 
the content there, it's like, it's very like clear cut, right? Like the way to keep a certain plant alive is the same for you as it is for me. So that is very informational content. Whereas like interior design, choosing the best sofa, like that's a very personal choice. Like what you think is comfortable is very different from, could be very different from what I think is comfortable. So with indoor plants, it was just like, I want to have this like, almost like a sandbox to just play with and see like if there are different ways to grow a site and different ways to make this work. Yeah. Gotcha. That's interesting. So essentially whether it's indoor plants or living cozy, you're creating all this content that lives on the website and the content is very good at ranking for when somebody searches for certain queries related to sofas or indoor plants, whatever else, there's a good chance that it's going to show up on that first page in Google. People click on it, they have a read. And if they end up buying one of the products that you have a partnership with, then you get a, you know, a commission basically for selling it. So I guess it's all about being good at creating the content, right? Because if you can't create the content that gets people onto your website, then you can't sell them. And I imagine that's like pretty mathematical just in terms of like how that flows. So you've obviously had, so I want to go back a bit like to where we kind of left off on your journey. So, you know, your first online business, you're 18, you're 19, um, you're kicking that off. You also had a pretty long stint in content working for other, work, like working for companies as an employee, right? Um, so how do you kind of summarize like that time period where you were working in content, um, but for somebody else's company? Yeah, so there's probably like, a couple of like real pivotal like moments in that journey. So I think like the first one, um, after starting like the web businesses and failing at that, um, I knew like, okay, I actually need to like pay the bills now. Um, you know, like I can't keep building websites in my room for the next 10 years. And I ended up getting a job at an agency building like, fantasy sports games so we ran like the fantasy football games for like sky sports and big publishers and i think that's probably what introduced me well not introduced me to writing like i'd already done a lot of writing online at that point on like my own blog and different small like sports blogs and things like that but um you know that gave me the confidence that i could actually like do this maybe as a living because like i was writing emails that were being sent out to like hundreds of thousands of users of these these games um i was like you know writing copy for the websites and um you know also like account manager so like managing project teams developers all of that um so a lot of like wide-ranging experience but um yeah that was kind of like my first job and it was very challenging to be honest like it was a challenging company to work for really like, very Why? tough uh to be honest, like just a CEO that just couldn't manage people. Um, it was like being at school, like you'd, something would go wrong and you, you'd just get called into the office. The whole like team outside the office would hear you getting shouted at. Then you just like sulk out, sit back at your desk, get on with work. Um, and yeah, like I just, to be honest, hated being there. And like there was this really, there was like two years um, in a row where like I knew I wanted to leave and I'd applied for this job at Adidas um, to be like their social media manager on the football account which was like at the time my dream job and the first year I got down to like I think the final two or three 
and it was just like a no. And I was a bit guided, but then just got on with it. I was like, ah, maybe that was a stretch too far. Like, then it came up again the next year, and I was in the final two. And like, I still remember like exactly taking the phone call to being like, yeah, we went with the other person. And I was just like on my lunch break, like walking around Soho in London, um, like right next to this like little golden square place where I like, we used to walk through every day and I got the call and it was like, look, we've gone with the other person, but like, here's why, like, you need to get more experience. Like this person had more direct experience managing brand accounts, etc. And that kind of made me realize, I'm like, if I want to get out of this like agency and this like job that I don't really enjoy, like something has to change. Like I can't keep applying for this same job every year and getting rejected for the same reasons every year. Um, so from there, I kind of made the decision, like I need to get more experience and started looking for like freelance opportunities. And it just so came up that like um, this agency who worked with a few sports clients wanted someone to help run one of their brand accounts um, part-time. And I DM'd them on Twitter, DM'd the account manager on Twitter or the director of social media at the time. And we spoke, like I was sat in the Tesco's car park outside where my agency office was. And she was like, oh yeah, like we think you'd be a good fit. Like, do you want to come down Sunday? Um, it's the, I think it's the final of Wimbledon. And they were like, oh, um, you know, we're going to be doing like a live coverage of the event. Like, do you want to come down Sunday, have like a trial day? Um, and yeah, like went to that, it, it went really, really well. Um, and they were like, yeah, we can give you like, two days a week freelance work for like the next, I think it was like three or six months at the time. And I was like, okay, cool. Perfect. And like, yeah, actually, that freelance work paid more than my full-time salary at no the way. agency. And I was like, I can go and work like two days a week and earn more and take steps towards like where I know I want to be. So I think like, yeah, that's probably like the long story of how I got into con creating content first. And then it kind of like, evolved from like yeah, managing like brand accounts on social and that type of content to more like longer form um, editorial content. When you got that call to tell you that you didn't get the job, you, I mean, obviously you're super disappointed, especially because it's like the second year that you didn't get it. But like when you're telling me here about your reaction, it's very much one of fighting. It's like digging your heels and it's like, okay, I don't have it, but I'm going to go and get the experience. I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to, send the code dm um where like where did that kind of fight or resilience come from yeah i think i remember them i had one of those probably like in the moment it was just like yeah this is shit like this feels shit i don't want to keep having this feeling um to be honest like i guess a lot of it probably comes from like playing sports growing up as well um like i'd say yeah, playing you know football and basketball from a fairly young age is probably one of the best things I've ever done because it teaches you all those things that like you will lose way more than you win. Um, and yeah, I think like that kind of helps. And it's like, yeah, you know, the reaction is you can either just be like, oh, yeah, that shit, that wasn't meant to be. I'll go back to my desk and continue with the job I dislike or I can go and change something. And yeah, I think a lot of it, probably does come from like 
sport and you know like my yeah like my dad's always run his own company and like I'm sure you know I've seen probably seen him have like rough times and deal with it um and I think yeah you just kind of see the like people around you it's just like things won't go your way all the time but it's like you can either just accept it and essentially be a little bit miserable or you can just like deal with it and figure out what needs to change because it's like yeah you know if I hadn't have you know like reacted to that call like maybe I'm still sat at that agency 10 years later still having the same arguments with the same people like not enjoying it so yeah I think like it's to me now it's like it's the only way to react to things like if something doesn't go your way like make a change and figure out how to kind of turn it into a win the place that you probably spent like the bulk of your time when working in content was at buffer what was that like because i think they're a quite interesting company for people who don't know them how would you describe like buffer and what it was like to work there yeah so buffer is a social media software company um they started probably like 12 or so years ago now as like a way to schedule tweets and Facebook posts for brands and small businesses. Um, and have now kind of expanded into like analytics and essentially like a full suite of social media management tools for small business. Um, but what Buffer's most known for is like the transparency behind the business. So like all of the numbers are public from like revenue to team salaries. Um, so like basically every internal process is like talked about openly in the public and that's kind of what created like a lot of initial hype and excitement about Buffer and um, yeah when I joined it was actually like the third time I'd applied to join Buffer that I got through um, and actually got the job um, which was really cool and I think like again like I remember exactly what happened like it was my girlfriend's birthday and we were around her family's house and I got the email saying like, Oh, we'd like you to join. Um, and yeah, it was kind of like shocked. I was like, wow, like I've, I'm like for Buffer now. Like I'd looked up to them for years. Um, like, you know, followed Joel, the founder on Twitter and, um, you know, really like admired everything about the business. And they were like kind of a, they set the standards for like content marketing in like the 2010s. So it just felt like a really exciting opportunity. Um, and yeah, I joined as essentially a content writer. So like my role was to publish like two blog posts per week. Um, they also had this like this thing at the time, which like they've now got rid of, thankfully. Like I don't think it was a great practice. But um, when you first got offered a job there, you had a six week, they used to call it the buffer boot camp. And it was basically like you worked for them for six weeks. And then they decided if they were going to keep you on full time or not, which for me was like, it made no difference. I was like, I'm freelancing anyway. Like if they offered me a six week contract, I would jump at it. But it was kind of rough if you had to leave a full time job to then take like six weeks and then have no guarantee. From the company's perspective, if they can convince people to do it, it's fantastic because after six weeks, you know, for sure whether that person is actually good or not and whether you want to work with them. But from the actual candidate or the person's perspective, it's very tough. Like who's going to leave like a really good job on for a six week contract at the end of which they might be told they don't get a job. 
it does not. Yeah, it's. I don't know how long it carried on for, but yeah, like eventually it it got scrapped. Um, but it was just like again one of the things about Buffer is like they're constantly experimenting. So like that was probably an experiment. Like there were times where we had, uh, I think it's called like a teal organization structure. So like no one has a manager, like everyone manages themselves. That was trialed for a while. Um, you know, just before I left, actually, like they moved to like trialing four day work weeks. Um, and I think they're probably in like the third gear of doing four day work weeks now. Um, it was just kind of everything was on the table. Like, you know, what's the best way to build a business? Like, let's find out essentially like Joel and Leo, who was the co-founder at the start as well. Like they were always just like pushing the boundaries and trying new things, um, which to be honest probably was why Buffer became like such a leading um, voice in like the content marketing space, because like they were able to embrace that and to try it and to experiment. Like, you know, nothing was ever really like shot down in the early days. Um, It was kind of like, you know, if, we wanted to say like, we're not going to publish anything new for two months. We're just going to update older posts because, you know, we have a hypothesis that this is the result that will happen from doing that. Like we were encouraged to go and do it. And it was like a really incredible place to be at that time because it's like the business was growing and everyone was kind of learning and challenging themselves and trying new things and nothing was off the table. I think like, you know, a stark contrast from, I started my career where it's just like it was very regimented you do things the boss's way or you go um you know there was a very like free flowing open culture at buffer um yeah do, do you think there's a buffer in 2023 like an equivalent i don't know that there is like i mean there probably is in like some sort of like web free startup or like maybe some like ai ones but like i kind of feel like a lot of the the work has been done like i think someone will like build companies in the next few years that will kind of like revolutionize the way we work and like ai is probably going to make a big difference to how organizations operate but i can't think of any that like are challenging things quite as much as buffer did in those days where it's just like yeah we're going to do you know go all in on remote work like the buffer office in San Francisco shut, I think the week before I joined and like everyone was fully remote. Um, yeah, like publishing everything transparently, like tackling everything like head on. Like there was a big focus on like diversity and inclusion at buffer, like before it kind of became a thing, like they were always like one step ahead, but now the world's kind of caught up. And I feel like the things that maybe like, six seven years ago when i joined buffer were like revolutionary is now just like how companies operate like most companies are remote friendly like they understand the importance of like inclusivity and diversity like they understand that you need a flexible work day that like people shouldn't be forced to work nine to five um so i can't think of any off the top of my head but like i do think in the next one or two years we're going to see like the world of work like completely reinvented again I think, yeah, just because of like AI and the way everything's going, I feel like people kind of want a bit more freedom and I feel like more people are kind of waking up to like the beliefs of like, you know, work isn't, or life isn't just about work. 
And I think like AI might enable us hopefully to kind of step away from working so not not so hard, like but working all the time, like work becoming the like being the dominant part of our lives. Um because like I kind of feel like the end goal of technology should be that like humans become more freed from work because like otherwise like what's the point in constantly advancing technology if we still have to sit at a desk for like eight hours a day to move forward in our careers and and work like um yeah i just think like the end goal of tech should be that humans are more free to actually like go back to spending more like leisure time doing more things with friends doing more things with family like i don't know when we get there because it's like a big shift and it's probably like government changes that need to happen to support that um but that's kind of where i hope we get to yeah is that like what you'd want for your own life as well yeah i think so i think like i i wouldn't say i'm like less career driven now than i was like five or ten years ago but i also am you know maybe becoming more aware of like how finite time is and the you know, like spending it in front of this computer in my spare room, like probably isn't overall like the best use of time. Um, you know, like certainly it is to like to pay the bills and to enable life and to do work that I kind of find fulfilling. But, you know, I'm not going to look back in like 40 years and just be like, oh, that was incredible. Like those weeks I spent in front of that computer, um, you know, they probably will be, they'll be worth it because of what they've enabled for me. But it's like, I work really hard in front of the screen to enjoy the time I have away from the screen. And I hope that like, we can have more time away from screens in the future because there's, you know, going to be a lot of manual work that can be done by machines. Or what do you do now with like your time away from the screen? And if you had more of it, what would you do? Yeah, so I think, like, the big shift that I've found and something, like, I tried to do even when I was, like, full-time in work anyway was just kind of put, like, myself first, essentially. It's like, you know, I don't think I can do my best at work if, like, I'm not feeling good. So, um, you know, with my time now and kind of being in charge of my schedule, I know that I can put my health first. For example, like, I can get up and go for a run before I start work. I can go to the gym in the middle of the day when it's empty and get a workout in, in like 45 minutes that would probably take an hour and a quarter if it was rammed. And um, I think like that's a real big thing is like, you know, being able to put myself ahead of work and like make sure the first thing I do every day is like look after myself versus like staring at my screen and trying to squeeze in a workout or a run when I can. Um, so yeah, that's a big thing. Like, um, you know, travel has always been a big thing for me, like being able to kind of go to different parts of the world, try new cities, like try new things, see new places. Um, and then, yeah, I'm also just like a big sports fan. Um, you know, like if I can carve out time to just watch an NBA game every other day or something like that feels like a win to me. I just think like, you know, maybe five, 10 years ago, I was more obsessed with like the work bit. And now I'm more like obsessed with the life bit and trying to kind of, 
you know, find the right balance between work and life for me and not kind of, and I think like it's different for everyone at different stages of their career. And like, I hope that's kind of where we land with work where it's like, it works for everyone because it doesn't really at the moment. What changed between say five years ago when you would have put work first between now where you put yourself first? Maybe I'm just getting older, (laughs) but no, I think like, and this might sound really cynical, um, but at the end of the day, like businesses are businesses, like you're expendable to a company. Right. Like if I, you know, like I loved my six years at Buffer, they were incredible. Like it was actually really tough to leave. But as soon as I leave, they replace me. Like, you know, it doesn't really matter. Like, um, and it's just, yeah, you know, you can kind of put it all into work, but in every role, every person, maybe there's like five people in the world that aren't replaceable. Like, um, although, you know, even, you know, Apple, Pixar, like, they moved on after Steve Jobs and if he can be replaced, like I can be replaced. So, um, yeah, I think like that was probably a big shift to just kind of realizing like, you know, a business as a whole, as an organization, like its goals, its success comes before any person. And if the business is always focused on itself first, then like, so should I, like, you know, if you can put your all into a business and then, still get let go or the business shuts down and then you can be like that was my life for five years like then now it's nothing like um and I think that's probably like the big realization was just like yeah you know like you can be really important to an organization you can do great work but at the same time like you shouldn't do that at the expense of enjoying your life and like your friends and your family because like they're the ones that will be there when like the company isn't a hundred percent. I think um, the very extreme version of that story that I've heard before is like, if you died, like if you literally died, um, first of all, there'd probably only be a handful of people from your company who would like show up to your funeral. And also like within a week, things would have moved on. Like they, they really would have, um, which is you know a scary and not nice story to like think about, but it is actually true. But I think, you make some very good rational reasons behind that. But I do also think there's kind of like an emotional change that has to happen as well. Like depending on the person, because from my, say for myself, I would have tied a lot of my own self-worth to my job and to my performance in that job. So you might've made all these arguments to me saying, oh, but you have to put yourself first. And, you know, if the the business puts itself first and all of these things, but if your self-worth is tied to your job, it's very hard for you to actually do that. And like, that's kind of a deeper thing that's not necessarily listening to like these rational reasons. So there's obviously lots of reasons why people might not put themselves first. Um, And you kind of, I think it's a, like, I don't think there's any formula for it, right? Like everybody kind of goes through their own journey. I've probably, I've definitely gone through my own, whereas I would have always put work first and not myself first. And then I couldn't tell you one inflection point or one thing that happened or one thing that I realized, but then slowly you moved down the spectrum to putting yourself more first. Um, would you agree with that? Yeah, definitely. And I think like part of it is just like a learning curve. And, you know, like if I didn't, you know, I, I don't know necessarily that I like work 
fewer hours now than it's like five years ago but like i definitely am like more i'm happier to like skip a day or like if something doesn't get done like i know it's not the end of the world um but yeah i think like you also have to get to a point in your career where like you can start to think that way like if i'd have started my career thinking this way like i probably wouldn't have got anywhere so I think like you do kind of have that like maybe stretch of your 20s where it's just like you do have to work really hard to then get yourself into a position to achieve this. Because like, you know, I know it's like a position of privilege to have been at these tech startups to give you a more flexible life, like introduce you to this way of thinking, like, um, you know, even just like the types of cultures that like encourage you to read certain books about like, you know, the ways the world works how to work like what how to think how to like be happy like all of those things like you know buffer kind of probably did introduce me to a lot of that thinking and i think as well like just being exposed to like different beliefs from different people around the world and like different ways of working um also opens your eyes to like it's not a one size fits all like work i think used to be and now I think, yeah, it's kind of very much open to that. But like, yeah, you do have to have that like stretch in your early career where it's just like you have to kind of put everything in, I think, to then figure out one, like what you actually want to do and what you're good at, but two, like what you actually want. Because like for some people, they might love 15 hour days and having all of their like worth tied to the business. Like that might be the perfect life for someone, but I've realized it's not for me. Like, you know, I realized that, you know, I think in my earlier 20s, like it was, it was kind of all about like, what does this look like from the outside? Like, I want to climb the corporate ladder. I want to get the good job titles. I want to sound cool. I want my LinkedIn to look nice. Um, and then kind of gradually I was like, you know, am I applying for these jobs or like pushing for a promotion because I want it or because it's like the logical next step? It's like, I don't necessarily know that I ever want to manage a team of 15 people, but, you know, I would pursue those steps in my career because it felt like the way to grow. And like, that was the traditional way to do it. And yeah, I just don't know that that's for me. And how, how, how did you figure out what you did want to do? Um, probably through a lot of like, experimenting i think like talking to people as well um was a big thing just like having the opportunity to like interview a lot of different people from different backgrounds for content um i think like that really helped me and like a buffer like we produced a few podcast series that i was like lucky enough to kind of lead and a lot of those like stories were about like the way people work like the what success means to different people in business. And I think just like being exposed to those perspectives helped me to kind of think through what I want. Um, you know, there were also just like conversations I had with, um, you know, different people either at work or like, you know, peers at different companies about like where they saw themselves going. And then kind of, I think it was like, it almost gave me permission to like, I gave myself permission to like think about it and to kind of say like, do I want to be like on the path to being a CMO? Um, 
and I still remember like I was chatting to, to an ex-colleague and you know one of the things he said to me because he was kind of on the same path and he was just like yeah I've you know I've decided I don't want to go and climb the marketing team ladder anymore and it's like I don't know one happy CMO and I don't want to aspire for that to be the pinnacle of my career and I think that really kind of hit home was like yeah you know is that really what you want it's such a good point like and it's actually a very simple and obvious thing to do to check if you're on a path that's going to make you happy it's just like go to the people who are where you are trying to get and talk to them and see how happy they are i definitely think it's a worthwhile thing to do it's just like look forward and sometimes you'll pick it up like secondhand because if you work with people and you can just like see what their life looks like so i had that experience um working in the last two startups that I worked at. So if you'd asked me five years ago what I wanted, would have wanted to do, I would have said I would have wanted to have founded a startup, um, a VC-backed one, like something that was going to go and become a unicorn or whatever else. And I was lucky enough in my last two roles, I worked very closely with the CEOs and founders of two tech startups. One of the biggest things that taught me was that that is not a life I want to live. It's just it's a really tough life and it made me have so much respect for the people who can do it because it's so, so hard. But I was looking at them and I was like, this is not for me. This is not the kind of life that I want to live. And that's actually great information because I know now I do not want to start like a VC backed company, not something that's, that's on my radar. Um, so Let's talk a bit about the business then that you're running today and and where it started from. So you you started that while you were at Buffer, is that right? Yeah, so I started it in 2020, kind of, I think it's like right at the start of lockdown. It was like a month into the first lockdown here in England. Um, and it started because like, I'd always had that like, itch to do something of my own, like going back to when I was like 18, 19 and first started trying to build websites. Um, and, you know, constantly over the years, like I built different things that, you know, got off the ground, maybe got a couple of users um, and failed. And like the thing, similar to like what you were just saying about like, you know, five years ago, you'd want to run a VC back startup and build this big business. I had always been inspired by like software entrepreneurs like Joel from Buffer, for example. And I was just like, that's what I want to do. So I would try and, you know, find people to partner with and build these little software apps. And then I don't know what like sparked it, but I just had a realization one day where I was just like, you're not a product manager. Like you're not an engineer. Like why do I always try and build projects that rely on skill sets I don't have? Like that's, not the way to be successful. Um, so I was like, why don't I just start a content business, right? Like that's what I've built my career in. Like it's something I know inside out. Like I'm sure I could be successful at it. And it was all kind of sparked by um, a podcast series I produced at Buffer called Breaking Brand, which is all about this like direct consumer business being founded. And I, to be honest, like, you know, I still speak to Emmett, one of the co-founders of that business, like most months. And like, I find him like, he's incredibly inspirational, like everything that he's done and his companies have done, like I, you know, really look up to and, and admire. And they, 
you know, I'd done some work in D2C, so like direct consumer, like retail and e-commerce. And I was just like, that's a really interesting space. Um, you know, the brands that they were building at their company were all like focused on the home. And I was just like, yeah, home is really interesting. Like everyone has one. Everyone needs stuff. Um, there were tons of D2C businesses like expanding into the home space or launching in the home space. So one weekend I was like, why don't I just build a directory of all these businesses and see where it goes? So I like bought a template on Webflow, started playing around with it, um, literally like hacked it together probably between like Friday and Sunday afternoon, um, put a tweet out about it. And a few people were like, well, you know, this is cool. Like, um, it got a little bit of interest. And then I was like, okay, there could be something here. Like, what should I do next? And then just kind of lent into content. I was like, I know content. Like, I'm just going to start writing blog posts for this um, for this website. And, yeah, that was probably, like, the April to, like, June 2020. And then from, like... June all the way through to the end of the year, I was just like writing whenever I could. I'd just like write a new blog post for it. Um, and then it was kind of the December 2020 where it started to take off and get like, you know, tens of thousands of page views in a month for the first time. Um, I would say as well, like, I, you know, I skipped over one pivotal point that was um, there's some affiliate software called Skim Links, which basically you install in your website, put a bit of code in there, and it turns every link into an affiliate link. So if the brand you, you link to has an affiliate program, you'll get a percentage of the commission from that sale through Skim Links. And I think it was about six weeks after launch, we sold, like someone bought some bedding from one of the links that we put on the website and it generated £9.37 in revenue. And that made me think like, I can like, this is going this could work. Like there's something here. Um, mm. and that like nine pound 37 in revenue, like, I mean, it's not going to stretch far and cover many of my expenses, but it felt a lot better than getting paid my salary at the end of the month. And really? I think like that Why? really spurred me to go on. I think it's just like, I'd made it like it was from nothing. Like, um, and yeah, that like really spurred me on. And like, that's why like the, you know, the holding company, the, owns the, the media brands is called 937. Um, no way. Like, it's I was trying to figure out what that yeah. was. So it's, yeah, like the, the £9.37. Um, so it's kind of <sighs> always just there as a reminder of like, yeah, where it started. That is so, I love that so much. That is so good. But do you know what um, I love about that story is, or maybe the lesson I think that I can take away from it or other people listening can take away is to just do it right? Like you had this idea, you started it on a Friday, you had it launched, something launched by Sunday. Because what happens is when you do that, momentum kicks in. And that's the thing that I've been obsessed with lately is like momentum. Because if you had sat on that idea for a month or two months or whatever else, and not really done anything about it or not push it out to the wild, or just taking a long time to build it, you don't get any momentum. But once it's out there, the momentum kicks in. So you know, you get the first few people commenting on your tweet being like, hey, this is actually really cool. Then you actually start to see people on your site. Then you get your 937. And all of that is just this loop of momentum that's given you inspiration and motivation to go and do the next thing. 
And I think that's, I, I, for me, I think that's the most important thing. And that's what I found with the podcast as well. It's like once I had one episode out, somebody's like, oh, this is cool. You should maybe do another one. Then you do another one. And then it just, it builds and builds and builds. And, but once you, like getting started, it seems like the hardest thing. Would you agree with yeah. that? Yeah, definitely. Like it's, you know, I can't tell you the amount of businesses I've started in Google Docs that never were outside of Google Docs. And like, yeah, you're never going to be successful without trying and just putting something out there. And yeah, I agree. Like the momentum, like one thing leads to another and like, they're not always big, like groundbreaking things. It's just someone saying something to you one day or, you know, someone enjoying an episode of your podcast. And I think like one of the ways that I look at things now, like, especially in the content space is like, if you're going to do it, just like commit to a number. Like, um, I think it was, Noah Kagan like said this he's like the founder of sumo.com and like app sumo um and like yeah his thing is always like if you're going to start a newsletter or a youtube channel or a podcast commit to 50 episodes 100 episodes whatever it is because then you don't judge the results until you've hit that number like if you put out one podcast one blog post like no one's gonna care like probably no one's gonna notice but like by the time you get to 100, like you probably will have something or you know for sure that you don't. And I think like that's the important thing with all of this is just like to commit to doing it. You know, like, um, I mean, that's why I kind of mentioned like that time from like, I started the site in like April, 2020. And it was like December when it really started to take off. Like, obviously I had hints. There were like signals that it was working and things were going the right direction. But it was like, yeah, the December, so maybe like eight months later, where I was like, okay, like this is a thing now. Like it's it's going to go somewhere. Mm. But it was a long time still between that moment when it was a thing and getting tens of thousands of page views mm. and you deciding to go full time on it. Right. Yeah. So how did you manage this business on the side of your full time job? So yeah, I think just like being really disciplined with um what i do i think like that's why you know at the start i mentioned like we don't do too much on social and it's like i don't have time to do that um and that was you know essentially like how i was able to scale it full time was just kind of being a bit like ruthless with the prioritization um because you don't have the luxury of eight hours a day to fill so it's like every morning before i started my day job I would be like, right, what do I need to get done? And most of the time it was like writing something, publishing something, um, you know, at the point where I had freelance writers, like maybe assigning a piece to someone. Um, and it was just like, when you don't have time, I think like constraints are great for starting something because you have to focus on what's going to get you where you need to go. Um, and for me, it was like the formula was pretty simple. It's like, the more content I publish, like the more people visit the site, the more revenue I can make. Then when I make more revenue, I can hire writers. I can put out more content. Like it was a very clear cycle. So it was just like being disciplined and like, yeah, there were definitely Saturday mornings where I was like sat writing about dining chairs being like, why am I doing this? Like I could be doing anything. Um, but you know, because you kind of see those like signs, um, you know, I like, I know, I believe you've like really like Matthew McConaughey and like the Green Lights book. And like, I read that at some point 
in this like business journey. And it's like, that was my thing. And like each step of the business was like looking for like the green lights that this is going in the right direction. So it's like, initially it was like, how many blog posts can I publish? Like, oh, I can do like 10 a month. Okay, cool. Like then, you know, okay, are, you know, not necessarily even are they getting traffic, but like how many keywords is the site ranking for? Cool. Like it's going up to the right. It's like, cool. Like that's a sign. Like it's a green light that something's going right. And then it's like, how does that translate into impressions in Google? Then how does that translate into clicks? And it was like a long way down the line before I even was worried about like how many, like how much revenue I was making, how many sales I was making. It's like that's, way way down the end it's just like if i focused on that in month one and two like i probably would have given up because it made yeah it made that nine pound 37 in like month two but then it didn't make any more money for like another two or three months i don't think so um yeah that was i guess the signal a green light but yeah it's just kind of constantly looking for like things that tell me it's going in the right direction and then um yeah being ruthless with time and just being like right i've got two hours what do I need to do? Because you can get like really caught up when you start something and like, I need to do everything properly. Like I need to register a business name. I need to have a lovely logo. I need to like invest in all this software and like have a CRM and all this. And it's like, no, you, you really don't just like, if you've only got two hours, like do the thing, like whether it's, you know, whatever it is, like if it's an e-commerce store, like the thing you need to do is probably customer support or set up your Facebook ads. Like you can achieve a lot in like a little bit of time if you need to. Yeah, it's a great point. I think it's actually as simple as it sounds. It's actually a good skill to be able to pick that. What is the single thing that you need to do? You know, it's like if you run a burger restaurant, you need to make good burgers. That's the number one thing that matters because nothing else will matter if you don't make good burgers. And so I, I, I think that's a really good point. I also think, you know, when you're talking about it here, you make a really good point for building something as a side hustle first, like alongside the main job, because I imagine it would have been super hard for you to think long-term and make those decisions where you say, actually, you know, I'm not making revenue this month or this quarter, even this year, and that's okay and I'm just going to focus instead on the other things like building page views or building the number of keywords that I'm ranking for. If you were relying on the income to actually support yourself, like you're not going to get very far on 9.37 a month, right? But it's kind of this nice balance where you can say, no, I've got my income. That's going to look after me, pay the bills, whatever else. I can build this thing and I can be long-term about it because I don't have to worry about it for income. So I think that makes like a really good case for that. But then of course, you know, you did go full-time on it right so how did you make that decision to go full-time and leave the the job so yeah I think a lot of it was I felt ready like I didn't necessarily feel ready um when I left Buffer so like I think what happened like with me or like, yeah, for me was I'd been at Buffer for like six years and I felt really comfortable in that role. I was maybe at that point, like seeking the challenge from running the side business and like my day job wasn't necessarily pushing me. I wasn't learning, but I almost wanted to have this like other experience 
which is yeah, Biolift Buffer, um, you know, joined Wayflyer as you know the unicorn company. I was like, I almost need to before I go and do this whole like solopreneur or like run my own business thing. I want to prove to myself that I could survive at a high growth, high pressure unicorn environment because then I know like I know either it is for me and I love it and I want to keep doing it or I know I could do it but I don't necessarily want to and I then don't have that question in the back of my mind you know similar to what you were saying about like wanting to run a VC backed startup and now you've been so close to it you probably know you don't necessarily want to do that I think for me it was like I'd loved my time at Buffer. I needed a new challenge. And working on my own business would have certainly provided that. But I needed that, like, one more experience, I think, to, like, push me. And then I think when I knew it was time to go all in, um, one, like, there was enough finance in the business to not stress about income, um, which is a really big thing for me. Um, what sort of stage was it at? Was it like matching kind of your salary or how yeah, did you think like, about what level it needed to get to? So it had like surpassed salary and like, because I wasn't taking any money out while I was working, um, it yeah, had enough where like, if it earned zero, I could survive for a year on it and figure things out. Um, so like, that was a really big thing. And it also kind of got to the point where it's like it was growing, but like growing to the point I was like, at the start, the constraints felt really good. But at the end, the constraints were like, why am I spending eight hours a day on something that isn't this business? It kind of felt like it was pulling me out. I think like what was good at the start with the constraints then became at the end like, this question in the back of my mind where I'm like, where could I take this if I actually spent all day on it? Um, whereas like, yeah, work, you know, I kind of work on it in the morning and then switch into work mode. Then after work, I'd kind of be like, I'm too tired. Like I want to just watch an NBA game. want to go outside. Um, that I wouldn't get what I wanted to do done. And I think that kind of pulled me out where it's just like, yeah, it's now, the constraints aren't a good thing for me. And, you know, the time that I would be spending on it, I actually want to spend away from my computer because I've worked so much in the day anyway. Um, so, yeah, I think that was kind of it. It was just like financially it was secure. The opportunity felt big. And I'd got what I wanted. Like I had the experience. Um, you know, I felt like I'd proven to myself that if I wanted to, I could go to a tech unicorn company. Maybe one day again, like that will be something I want to do. But like, I realized, yeah, it was time for me to like mm -hmm. make the jump full time. Mm -hmm. And so that first Monday where you finished your full-time job and now you're full-time on your own thing, on your own business you suddenly got all of the hours of the day not just the few hours before work or after work to work on it what was that like to be honest i felt completely lost <laughs> like it was i remember just like i kind of went through my normal routine of like getting up at like 
six, seven, I'd work on it for a bit, then like go for a run or go to the gym. But then I kind of came home at the point I would normally start my work day. And I was just like, oh, what do I do now? Like I've done my hour of the business. I know there's like a ton of stuff I, I want to do and I could do, but it really did like take me a few weeks to like kind of get used to having the time to grow the business. And I think I also spent a lot of time thinking like, what do I do now? Like, cause you know, essentially like the answer was more of what's working, but I think I found myself searching for like, Oh, now I've got like an extra eight hours a day to spend on this business. What more can I do that I haven't been doing? And really, I think like the recipe for success was like, well, you've got eight hours more to do what has been working. So yeah, I think like that felt a bit like confusing and it definitely took me like a few weeks to just get used to like understanding that I have permission to work on this thing all day. Um, that it's not just something I have to spend two hours on. Um, but it's kind of, I don't know, like it definitely wasn't like underwhelming, but I think I thought it was going to feel like different. Like I'd kind of made it like I was my own boss. And actually it was just like, it was kind of the same. It was just like, I just now need to figure out how to fill all this time. Um, but yeah, you know, I, definitely do I don't want it to sound like it's not a good thing like I love it it's great but it just felt like strange like it didn't yeah. feel how I expected it to yeah because I think that's sometimes what happens as well especially when you're working remotely is say you're looking for your dream job and after a year of looking for it you land it and you're waiting months to actually start and then on a Friday you leave your old job and then on the Monday you start your new job and oftentimes it's just a case of closing down one laptop and opening up a different one in the exact same desk, in the exact same room that you always work in. And so it's like, the, there should be something happening. There should be like balloons going off or something that says like, hey, this is different. Like you've made it or whatever else. But without that, it's kind of, sometimes it's a bit hard to actually realize that things are different because you just, so many of the environmental things are actually the same. But did you... To, to get out of that then, was it just a matter of you eventually realized, hey, look, I just need to keep doing the same things I was doing, you know, with just more time? Was was it as simple as that? Or did you actually say, okay, there are maybe one or two things that I need to to add on to what I'm doing there? Yeah. So um, one, like I definitely feel you on the environment thing. Like that's why I've painted this room. because <laughs> um, I'm like, I need to make it feel a bit different. Um, but yeah, I think like after those first few weeks it was like you know um I kind of realized like the way I had been doing things was like a little bit broken like I hadn't been operating in the best way possible because I was operating in what time I had like I didn't really have good systems in place um I didn't you know like every time I would like write a blog post or like plan a month's content I would do the planning in the moment. I would create the drafts or the outlines in the moment. Like there wasn't many systems and I wasn't like planning ahead much because I just hadn't had time. I was being reactive when I was doing it as a side project. And yeah, after a few weeks, I realized like I've got the space now to be proactive and to actually build the things that are going to save me hours and hours, probably days worth of time in the long run, you know, like creating 
better editorial processes for assigning pieces to writers, for researching keywords, just like building out all of the process that like you kind of would if you were doing this as your day job. And I think like that um, really helped. And like, yeah, it took me a few weeks to kind of realize like I don't have to kind of continue doing things in this like rushed, broken way that I have been doing things because now I can, you know, I have the time to do it. Like when I was spending like two hours a day on it, it kind of felt like it would be a bit of a waste to spend like a week's worth of those hours writing out documentation about how to do something because it's only me. But then when I was full time, I was like, actually by writing all this out, like I don't have to then explain to new writers how we do things. I don't have to like explain all of the process. I don't have to start from scratch every time. And that's kind of where I think, yeah, being full-time like really helped was I realized like, yeah, I can kind of rebuild my process from, from scratch now. Yeah. So I've got a few more questions before we finish up. I'm really interested to know what the business looks like now in mainly in terms of like personnel and like how it works. Is it just you who's full-time on the business? Do you have, have you hired people? Like how does it actually work? I have a friend that I like run it with now. Um, because like one realization I had probably after like maybe two months of doing it was like running my own business. Like it was my dream. I really wanted to do it. But the reality was me spending most of my working hours in my spare room on my own. I was like, is this like the best use of my life? Like, um, you know, like I found there was no one to go through the ups and downs with, um, like I'd have a really good day. And, you know, obviously, like, I you know, talk about it with friends, like, tell my girlfriend when she gets home from work, but, like, they're not in it with you. Like, it's, you know, they don't get it. Um, so, yeah, I've got, like, uh, a friend that I run it with, and, like, we have different, like, complementary skills um, now, which has been been really, really helpful. And then, yeah, I have um, three freelance writers that I work with, like, every month. And then probably, like, maybe like 10 other freelance writers that we work with like ad ad hoc whenever we need to, um, when we need like a product review or something, um, then I have like a list of people that I go to and we did have like a, we yeah worked with like a digital PR agency to help get like backlinks and grow the site that way. And I think like my approach to running it has been like wherever I can, like bring in someone who knows what they're doing better than I do. Um, so, you know, like I could try and run digital PR campaigns on my own, but that would suck up loads of my time. Probably wouldn't be as successful as just like paying an agency to do it. Um, which, you know, like when there's budget, I think it's good to spend it um, in ways that allows me to keep like working on stuff that's like in my sweet spot. Um, you know, essentially like, it's the same learning as why I didn't start a software company. It's like, you know, work on what you're good at all day. And if you can like outsource the rest, um, you know, it's like from day one, when I first went self-employed, like maybe eight, nine years ago, I hired an accountant because I hate accounting and I hate numbers and it's probably saved me a ton of money, but also I, I've never stressed once about a tax return because I know it's taken care of. So, yeah, I think, like, that's kind of my approach is, like, do everything I can to try and keep, like, me in my sweet spot and 
get people that are better than me to do everything else where there's budget to. Obviously, you know, like I can't do everything that way, but that's the ideal way that I want to run it. And when you look at your lifestyle now or like what your average day might look like, how how good is it? Like where would you rank it in one to 10? And if there's anything that you kind of still want to improve or change, it might be that you want to sit in front of the screens less or do more spend time with more people or whatever else it is I, I don't know but what would they be so yeah like how how close are you to what you would say is like your ideal day or ideal life yeah i would say like it's pretty close um like you know i'm able to yeah go for a run go to the gym whenever i want um you know i'm always there with the retired people which is always quite fun um and yeah it's like um I'd say from that respect, like it's pretty close. Like my I, my work day is quite ideal. Like I only you know probably have like two or three meetings per week, uh, which I really like. Um, I think like the one thing I have found myself like looking for, and like I don't know what the answer is. It's probably not a co working space, but it's like is something like a bit more like. I don't, I don't think I miss an office because like I wouldn't want to commute, but I would like to have more opportunities to say like go into the city. Like all of the brands we work with are in the US, but like I'd love it if there was some in London where like every few weeks I could go and see them and work together with them on stuff. And yeah, I think it's like the only thing missing is a bit more like interaction with people and partners that we work with that isn't virtual. Um, but yeah, that's like a very small, like minor part of it. But yeah, I think like that would be be nice. I think like with all the remote work stuff, it's like incredible. But then I think you also need like some other, I think like the technical word for it is like a third space that's like not home, not quite work, but like somewhere else to go. Um, yeah, and I'm, I'm obsessed with this idea right now of, of like the third space. Because, yeah, as you said, the idea is, like, the first space is your home, second space is where you go to work, and the third space is, like, where you just hang out outside of both of those two places and you can meet people and maybe in some communities that used to be the church or it would be a club or um, something else. But essentially now with remote work, so the third space has gone away in a lot of communities because those things just don't exist anymore. And now the second space has actually gone away for a lot of people because we just work from home. So it's collapsed into the first space. So now we just have our first space and a lot of us are just at home all the time. And I completely agree with you. So I'm really obsessed with this idea and what you can do to create it. Because I've realized working from home a lot and especially like living alone, right? It's like you can just sit at home all day and not talk to anybody. And, you know, at 3 p.m., you might say something just to make sure that your your voice still works, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, um, but I, I, I think that's really important. Like, I think I'm probably going to go and start working in a shared working space a couple of days a week or something like that, just because I think you need some of that interaction. I'm the same as you. I don't want to commute. I actually don't even like working from an office all that much, which is like somewhere to go that isn't home, I think is really important really important my last question is if we were to sit down in say five years time and you were to tell me how Stephen, like the last five years have just been amazing not only just on the business side of things but like life lifestyle whatever you've done adventures 
Um, what is it that would have happened in those five years? So, yeah, I think the the big thing, like one thing I've always wanted to do is um, to build like a local media business. Um, I think I might have even mentioned this to you like years ago, but um, I think like it's a really important part of like society that like local news and like local governors and MPs and stuff are kind of held to account and the local press doesn't really do that at the moment. Like, cause it's just so the whole industry has just been like completely messed up. Like they're still kind of adapting to the online world. Um, I think like that's something that I really want to do and like a problem that I really want to tackle. Um, but you know, I'd also want to figure out a way to do it that fits with my lifestyle. Isn't like the big VC back startup. So I think I would have, got that off the ground in a way that like still enables me to kind of live the way I want to live. Um, because I think like a big part of how I look at, um, you know, like living cozy and the nine three seven business, like the publishing business is like essentially like the enabling business. It's the business that enables me to get out of full-time work so that at a later date I can tackle the bigger Thing that I want to tackle um, because it's really hard to go from like working full time to then starting your business that's going to be like your life's work essentially um, so yeah I think like that would probably be it like I'd figure out how to kind of juggle my lifestyle and then to kind of tackle problems that feel a lot more like meaningful to me because um, I know like I know it's something like you've been thinking about a lot as well but I think for me it's like yeah how do I kind of have the lifestyle I want, run the business, but also work on something that like I feel like has a tangible impact and feels rewarding or, you know, mm. like, yeah, a bit more rewarding. Yeah. Yeah. And I love that. Well, Ash, thank you so much for having a chat with me. Um, I really enjoyed it. I really loved hearing about, like, I mean, I've obviously known a bit about the business that you've been working on, but it was really cool to hear it in a bit more detail and also some of the stories that you have from the past and like your thoughts around when to move on and when to do different things. So, um, yeah, yeah thanks so much for coming on. Actually just say like one last thing on like knowing when to move on. Cause like, this was a really, yeah. really big thing for me. Um, yeah. I want to hear it. Maybe I've told you this before, but like I read this article once and it was basically like breaking your career down into chunks. And like, I've always had this thing where like, I want work to be, optional by the time I'm like 50, 55. Um, it's like not retirement, but like I can do what I want. And one of the big things that like made me actually take the jump from like buffer was I was like, I looked at it and I was like, I've got like this, I've got like 20 to 25 years left of my career, essentially, if I hit my goals. But instead of looking at like each year individually, like look at it as a percentage of your remaining career. And like that really helped me to make better decisions because spending one more year at Buffer, for example, doesn't sound like a lot, but it's 5% of my remaining career if I've got 20 years left. And if I spend two years there, that's like 10% of my career gone. Um, so, you know, like leaving Buffer and like taking the job at like Wayflyer that to me felt like a better use of 5% of my career than like one year somewhere else. So I think like, yeah, that's just like a useful 
calculation that I kind of use to try and frame like how I'm spending time in work. Like, is this a good use of five, ten percent of my career versus like spending one or two years somewhere? Yeah. I love that. I think that's actually really good. And it can work both ways, right? Because it's like it can make something feel like a lot. Or if you're super early in your career, it can make something feel like not that much. Because some people might say, oh, I want to go back and study. Let's say somebody's 24 and they plan to work until they're 54. And they're like, I want to go back and study for a year because I want to move into this area. But like a whole year, like that sounds like so long. Actually, no, it's 130th, right? It's like 3% of your entire career. If it means that you get to spend 97% of your career working in an area that you like, then that's actually a really good trade-off. So it's a, it can work both ways. And it's yeah. a cool system. Uh-huh. I like it. Ash, thank you so much. Fucking rip them up. They're not ready for you yet. Footprints, man. They're going to remember the name. Like I, I hope you enjoyed that conversation that I just had with Ash. I'm always keen to hear what you think of these conversations and what you've learned from them. So do hit me up on socials and let me know. So on LinkedIn, you can get me on my personal profile, just Steve Duke. And on Instagram, you can get me on at two roads pod, at two roads pod. So just follow me there, connect with me. And if you learned anything from this or if you have any thoughts on it, please do send them on. And thank you to everybody who has been doing this already. Anybody who's been messaging me, I really appreciate it. And I've been getting more and more in the last couple of weeks. And it's so useful. It's so useful to hear what people think of the pod, get their thoughts, get their feedback. Um, And it's also super encouraging as well. So I massively appreciate it. A couple of thoughts on this conversation that I just had with Ash Reed. So here are the few things that I took away from it. So firstly, I love how much clarity that Ash has on the life he wants to live. He knows what his ideal day looks like. And he knows that it doesn't include him sitting down and spending 10 hours in front of a screen. And this is not what you usually hear when you think of entrepreneurs. Usually it's all hustle porn, right? People working 14 hours a day, seven days a week. But Ash knows that that's not what he wants. That's not what's going to bring him happiness. And he has built his life around that. So he still has a mad successful business, but he finds so much joy in spending time with his girlfriend, his friends, playing sport, watching sport and traveling. And he does all those things. And I love that. It's so simple, but I really just love when you hear somebody who's like, yep, I figured out what a good day looks like. I figured out what a good life looks like and I made it happen. And I think Ash has done that. Secondly, I loved hearing his stories about resilience. The guy got knocked down a couple of times and he has this attitude that I just freaking love. If he gets told no or he gets knocked down, he doesn't sit around feeling sorry for himself. He just says, okay, well, what do I need to do to get better? And he moves forward with that mindset. And how do you beat a guy with that mindset? I just don't know. But it's important, especially if you are changing careers or you're going through that job search because you're going to get knocked down a lot. You're going to get turned away from applications. You're going to get ignored, whatever else it is. And having resilience through that is super, super important. The next one was the power of a cold DM. So... There is one DM standing between you and the job that you dream of. And if you've never cold DM'd or emailed somebody, I'd strongly recommend it and learning how to do it because it is a bit of a skill. There's just so many opportunities out there if you know how to 
and you kind of have the the courage to just shoot somebody a message like what's really the worst that can happen and this is very much true for ash you can see how many opportunities and things that cropped up for him jobs that he landed basically from just dming somebody on twitter also i love this little hack for thinking about time in your career as a percentage of the total time that you will work for i just think this is a great way to put things in perspective especially if you're making a big career move of course one of the big topics of this episode was all about having a side hustle and building a side hustle and ash made me really realize the power of having a side hustle and i also liked hearing about how to start one so right now he's living this life that he dreamed of for a long time but he couldn't have done that if he didn't start his business back as a side hustle over a weekend in 2020 when he still had a full-time job so what he launched on that weekend wasn't sexy but he got something out in the wild and that allowed the power of momentum to take over so i think the lesson that we can take from this is if there's something you're interested in and think that you might want to do it full time in the future start it as a side hustle now like i'd say just do it and see what happens i really don't see the downside of that so i learned so much from this conversation i hope you enjoyed it that's all for now. I'll see you next week for episode 14 of the Two Roads Podcast.